guys for being here this morning. It's a great honor to get to stand up and share with you some of the things that God's brought through my study and in and, and my life and, and in my uh, 58 years uh, on this earth through the teaching of my mother and so many other women who have <laughs> spoken into my life in godly ways. And I am appreciative that y'all are all here today. So here's the problem that I've got. We've started this series of me saying, I want to examine the curriculum vitae or, or CV or resume, you may want to call it, of God, which of course I have to write because he didn't write one, but that's okay. I, with some fear and trepidation, try to put it down as to some points about God that I think are worthy of us examining. But as I do this, it makes it really hard this week to teach the continuation of what I said last week, recognizing that statistically 30% of the people who are in here this week were not here last week. So I don't want to just jump into the B1 subpoint. <laughs> I need to make sure we're all on the same page. By the same token, some of you who were here last week have totally forgotten everything I said anyway. <laughs> If I even made it understandable to start with, which I may not have. Add to that yet another layer. And that's a layer of, of uh, us just making sure that we're plugging all of these pieces together as a puzzle. So with that, we're going to spend about 10 minutes in review from last week. Don't go to sleep on me unless you really have it down well, and then alert your neighbor to elbow you as soon as we get to the newer material. I've tried to use some of the same slides as last week to make it a refresher, but I've also tried to put in some new ones to maybe give it a bit of a different shape so that it's, it's got some more appeal to learning it, if that makes sense. So within the framework of that, last week... We started out with this question of who is God? Now, our tendency as human beings is to use some mental mathematics when we're thinking about God. Our tendency is to think about God almost in an opposite fashion of how I'm going to suggest we should. Let me explain to you what I mean. Here's the way it works. Most of us would say that God is good. Right? Okay. I mean, some people think he's evil, but they, 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 they need to tune in. Okay? God is good. Now, the next mathematical step is I'm a human being. I'm a, a being who knows what ethics and morality are. So I think X, Y, Z, whatever that should be, is good. I think this is a good thing. I think this is a good attitude. I think this is a good behavior. I think this is a good thing. And because God is good, and because I think X, Y, Z is good, then God must be X, Y, Z. Just makes mathematical sense. I think it's good. I, I think God is good. 
I think being kind is good. Therefore, God must be kind. I think God is good. I think eating jelly donuts is good. Therefore, God must have made jelly donuts for me. I think God is good. I think it's good to be non-judgmental and to be tolerant of all behaviors and ideas. Therefore, God must be non-judgmental and tolerant of all behaviors and ideas. You see how this works? Because what we're doing here is taking this idea of who is God and we're doing it wrong. Our tendency is to take the idea of who is God and as we're scratching our head with it, we decide based on, on, on who we think God should be what he is. We decide God is, the answer to that question, who is God, it's, it's whoever we think he should be. So it's whatever we think is good is what God must be. And if God is not what we think he should be, then tisk tisk, who wants that God? And the problem is, I'm not saying we can't get some concept of God that way we can. But the concept of God that we get is one that is not necessarily the purest and the best. Instead, the biblical teaching is that we should learn who God is by how he reveals himself to us. Because God reveals himself to us so that we might know him. And so when he reveals himself to us, our goal is to study his revealing of himself, his revelation, the scriptures. Our goal is to study those so that we can more clearly see who God is. Because if we try to do it on our own, we will not come up with as good an understanding of God. It will be a projection, to use the psychological term, of what we want God to be. Or if we don't like God, it's a projection of who we don't want Him to be. But it's a question of whether we're going to exist as the center that defines all things, even God... Or whether we're going to learn how God is and let him be the center who defines all things. So that's why I used this slide last week that Revelation, that the Bible, not the book of Revelation per se, but the entire Bible becomes our key to overcoming our natural tendency to shape God into something in our image Failing to understand that he made us in his image. We don't create the God of our image. We try to understand the God who made us in his. And so God, the scripture, is God's continuing revelation of who he is. 
God reveals who he is progressively over time within the Bible. Some books are, are more revealing of God. Some are less revealing of God. But throughout the Bible, we get this progressive revelation of who he is. And that gives light and it gives color to our understanding of God. Tracking with me? We're basically done with the review. But there's one more important thing we've got to do. So when we look at God's CV, we've got to get this from the Bible itself. And I've tried to take, doesn't mean we can't use modern words. Doesn't mean we can't use ideas that we've grown to understand over the centuries within the study of God's word. But it means that we've got to find it as God revealing it to us rather than us making it up about him. So I pulled out the first section of what I put into God's resume or or course of his life, curriculum vitae in Latin. And I looked at the traits last week with you of God being all loving because he is. God is all loving. The scripture says God is love in 1 John 4, 8. And so this idea of God being all loving takes on different meaning in our English ideas. Oh, Christian, I wish I had you up here to tell me German, but, but I don't have time for that. But otherwise, I'd love to know how this works in German. But in English, we have this word love that means all sorts of different things. I love my wife. I love apple pie. But I feel very differently about my wife than I do apple pie. I love my wife and I love our children. But I feel very differently about my wife than I do our children. That same word love just gets overused in English. So we looked last week at some of the Greek words for love. There are a few more that I didn't have time to get into. But we looked at the word phileo, which means an affection love. A love that you would have for a good friend. A love that you might have for sitting in a certain seat. I have I, I have a great deal of affection for this seat. Get out of it. It's mine. I've heard some of you say that in here. Tisk tisk. <laughs> so so affection love is one kind of love. And it's one that God has for us. God views you and he views me affectionately. He cares for us in that way. There's another Greek word for love. Eros is a Greek word for love that means a lust. A lustful passion. We get the word erotic from it. That word is not used of God. God does not lust for you and me. We don't bring him some sort of joy that he needs to feel. 
That is a difference between the God who has revealed himself in Scripture and the gods who have been made up by humanity trying to understand him. You go back to the Greeks and the Romans and the milieu in which the New Testament was written. And the Greeks and the Romans' gods lusted after individuals. And they would come have sexual relations with humans. And produce like junior gods. Mixed breeds, if you will. You go back to Israel and its neighbors and the milieu of the Old Testament. And you'll find other cultures where the gods had lusts for each other. And for others, they had these passions that needed filling. If you go back, do we have or, uh, Lawson Younger here? Lawson's right there. Did you ever translate the Gilgamesh stuff yourself? Okay, so Gilgamesh, would you, would you tell me if I get this wrong? Because I am pulling this out of my old memory, okay, which, which is always scary. So Gilgamesh, the epic of Gilgamesh is, is a story of the flood that was found in old Mesopotamian cultures, written at least the ones that Lawson did, I think, in a cuneiform script found in Nineveh or somewhere by Irving Flanders or some, I don't know, somebody found it. They translate it. And, and the Noah type character after the flood has to start a sacrifice because the gods have gotten so famished while he was, while, while the world was being flooded. So they're like, oh, please. And they're buzzing around the sacrifice like flies trying to inhale it because they need it. God does not need anything from us. God does. The God of Israel, the God of, of Jesus, Jesus who is God. The, God does not lust for us. We don't meet certain needs that cannot be met otherwhere. Otherwise, that's not a word used of God. God doesn't love us because of what we do for Him. The God of Israel... Unlike the God of Napushtim, the God of Israel, he's, he owns the cattle on a hundred hills. Thousand hills, thank you, Miss Carolyn. <laughs> Clearly she knows her psalms better than I do. <laughs> do you know which number it is? No, never mind. All right, God does not lust for us. There's another Greek word for love that's used for God. It's the word agapao. It's a word that we get agape or agape, we say quite handily in English, uh, speaking of the Greek. But it's a love that's concerned for our good. It's not simply an affection we feel like phileo. It's more of a focus on I'm concerned about what's best for you. I'm concerned about your good. I can see my buddy Max Bowman and I can say, hey man, I love you. I, I, I think you're a great guy and, and I just feel warm towards you. That's phileo. 
That's a different focus, though, from me saying, Max, I am concerned about you and what's going on in your life, and how can I plug in to make you better? So different shades of meaning. God is concerned for our good. God has that love. There's a Greek word for love of a parent for a child, storge. Not used in the New Testament per se, though the image of God being a loving parent is found throughout Scripture. Old and New Testament. He is called our Father. He's referenced His love for His people as a mother's love. And so you've got God as a loving God, and that's what we had last week. Now, if your neighbor has gone to sleep because they didn't need a review, it's time to elbow them and wake them up. We're moving into new material. I told you in preparation that there are two sides to every coin. So how does God both love and hate Because the all-loving God is also a God who hates. Ecclesiastes 3. To everything there is a season and a time under heaven. Right? A time to be born, a time to die. You remember the song, if not the scripture. Verse 8. A time to love and a time to hate. Paul in Romans says, let your love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Genuine love abhors, detests evil. And that's the picture image that we've got. Those are the two sides to the coin that are given to us. And I tried to think of how we can explain how love coexists with evil, because uh, with hating evil. Because both of those, love and hate, are on God's resume. They're on His CV. So how does this coexist? And, and the easiest way for me to think of this and, and to try to explain it is for me to talk about our children. If you don't have children... Pretend you do. Better yet, pretend you're a, you were a child or are a child. Most of you, that's true. Because we love our children, if we're good parents, because we love our children, we hate whatever harms them, what ruins them, what ruins their lives. A good parent is not tolerant of things that will wreck their children's lives. A good parent doesn't say, I want to teach my child tolerance. So I'm telling my child, don't play in the street. But my child wants to, and I want my child to value his self-choice and decisions. You go on out there and play in the street. No, we don't do that. We don't teach our children. We live in a culture where we love everybody. So when you're walking home from school, if a man pulls up in a car and says to you, Hey kid, want some candy? Get in the car with me. We don't teach our children, Oh, I love everybody. Yes, I'll get in your car. 
And if someone abuses our children, we rightfully hate that abuse. Evil is not something that is good. Evil is something to be hated because evil is destructive. So we've got to figure out how do hate and love intersect? Let me give you a passage of Scripture and let's look at it together. This is from Luke chapter 6 verses 27 through 36. This gives us an idea of how God reveals on these issues, okay? So Jesus is talking. Jesus says, I say to you who hear, love. The word love used there is agape. Agape. It means to be concerned about someone's welfare. Be concerned about the welfare of your enemies. Do good. To those who detest you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If you are only concerned about the welfare of those who are concerned about your welfare, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners are concerned about the welfare of those who are concerned about their welfare. But I'm telling you, be concerned about the welfare of your enemies. Do good. Lend to them. Figuring they'll never pay you back. And your reward's going to be great. You'll be sons of the Most High. God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your father's evil. See, this is where the expression, love the sinner, hate the sin, comes from. The concern here is you be concerned for others. You love them in that way, even as you may hate what they're doing. If you are an evil, wicked person, and I'm looking out there, I don't see any. But if you, if Adolf Hitler goose-stepped down that aisle and sat on the front row, I hope, as much as I detest so deeply everything I know about what that man did with his life, I hope I would still have the wherewithal to say, sir, you need Jesus. You need to turn your life around. There is one who will rescue you from the empty, horrible, evil being you have become. That's, that's what we've got to see here. Now, there's something behind this. I haven't given you anything that most of you haven't heard all of your life. But I want to dig into it a little bit deeper and I want to ask the why question. Why is this the case? And that requires us to go back to God's CV. The why question goes to his traits. You see, God is all loving, but God is also holy, true, moral. 
if you were taking a philosophy class in college, an ethics class, probably a few more classes I can't think of, but I came across it in philosophy and I came across it in ethics. One of the seminal stories that you would read to work through the question of what is good is a story written around 380 B.C. by an Athenian named Plato. Now, Plato's teacher had been Socrates. Plato would teach Aristotle. Aristotle would teach Alexander the Great. Just give you an idea of our reference here. So Socrates is, Socrates, we don't know anything he wrote. What we know about Socrates, we know because others wrote of him. One of those who wrote of him was his student Plato. So Plato wrote a story about Socrates and this young fella named Euthyphro. Socrates at this point is an old man in this encounter. And he's being called down to the judge over moral affairs within Athens. His title is the King Archon. The judge of moral affairs in Athens is the one who prosecutes people for being immoral. And Socrates is getting called down to be prosecuted. The sin or the crime with which Socrates is charged, for which Socrates will ultimately have the death penalty, and he died almost 20 years before uh, Plato wrote this dialogue. The, the, the crime is Socrates accused of trying to corrupt the young in Athens. So Socrates is headed to court to defend himself for corrupting the young. And perchance he encounters Euthyphro. Thifro means a gatekeeper, you means good. He's a good gatekeeper or he's the gatekeeper of the good. There's a great pun in Euthyphro's name. This whole story is laced with irony. It is such a fun story to read in English. It's a fun story to read in Greek. Um, it's really fun to try to figure out what on earth he's saying. It's, it, I mean, scholars write articles on it. And, but it becomes very famous for something called Euthyphro's Dilemma. I didn't put slides in because I didn't know how much time I'd have, but I think I've got about four minutes if y'all want to hear the story of Euthyphro's dilemma, okay? Looking at the time and how quickly this is going. All right, so Euthyphro's a young man. He's headed to court as well. He's going to prosecute his father, an old man. His father, allegedly is responsible for the death of a fella. The fella who died is a murderer. Everybody knows he was a murderer. The father of Euthyphro had just been walking down the country road and he finds the murderer. And so he grabs the murderer, he ties him up, 
says, stay here, which he has to, he's been tied up. Stay here. I'm going to go ask the gods, the diviners. I'm going to go find out what I'm supposed to do with you. And the dad runs into the city. And while the dad's gone, the murderer who's tied up dies. So the dad's son is taking the dad to court to prosecute him for being a killer. I'm a lawyer. I can win that case for the dad. That's what you're supposed to do. You see a murderer, you capture him, you tie him up, and you go get help. Not your fault he died while you were gone. So here's the irony of the story. Socrates, one of the ironies, Socrates is an old man being called to court for corrupting the youth. The youth is going to court. He's already corrupted, not by Socrates. He's just a corrupt youth who's trying to do in the old man. So it's not the old trying to corrupt the youth. It's the youth trying to corrupt the old. And what Socrates does is he tries to show Euthyphro the error of his ways and help Euthyphro grow up. Socrates isn't corrupting the youth, he's educating them. He's making them more socially responsible. He's making them more of what Athenians should want their youth to be. But in the process of that story... Plato has woven into it this whole issue of how do you decide what's good and evil? Because Euthyphro says, hey, I'm going down there to do some good. And Socrates says, how do you know what you're doing is good? And Euthyphro says, because um, Zeus, the big god, he tied up his dad. He got his dad in trouble for doing bad stuff. So it's a good thing to get your dads in trouble for doing bad stuff. Socrates says, you know, I ask you how you know it's good. And what you did is you gave me an example. That doesn't tell me what's good or not. That's just giving me an example. So tell me what's good. How do we know what's good? And Euthyphro says, oh, well, what's good is whatever the gods love. That's good. And Plato says, which of the gods? Because they fight all the time about what they love. Euthyphro says, oh, all right. Makes another try at it. Uh, how about if we say what's good is what all of the gods agree on? If some of the gods don't agree, then that may not be good. But if they all agree, if it's a unanimous verdict, bam, that's good. Socrates says, well, I have a question. Is it good because they all love it or do they all love it because it's good? This is the dilemma. Now I'm going to come back to it in a moment. But first I want to tell you about someone else who faced the same type issue. And that is Jesus. Jesus confronts that issue, and I'll get to that in a moment. But before I do, we've got to underscore how serious it is within the Bible that there is such a thing as evil. 
sin itself, we don't tend to see that serious. You may be saying, oh, I do. I'm not so sure. I mean, I'm looking at it myself. Do I see sin as that seriously bad? I'm not sure I do. Unless I force myself to focus. But it drips off every page of the Bible. This is God's revealing as opposed to our subjective thinking. Look at Mark 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you know what gospel, euangelion in the Greek, do you know what it means? It means good news. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. So if Jesus coming into the world and dying for our sins is good news, if you take that away, what is the news without Jesus? It's bad news. And that's sin. That's evil. That's immorality. That's impiety. That's unholiness. That's whichever words you want to use. But you remember this slide where I showed you our tendency is to, to, to decide based on who we think God should be, who he is, instead of who he's revealed himself? That same thing happens with our view of salvation and religion. We tend to develop a religion of fairness. We want to be fair people. How many of you want to be considered fair? See, almost all of you. I want, to, I want people to look at me and say, he's fair. Not like average. I want them to say, he, 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 you know, I'm a lawyer in a courtroom. I'm trying a case in Dallas. I'd like the jurors to see that I'm a fair person even though I'm an advocate. But because we want to be deemed fair, we have a tendency to develop a religion of fairness. And it's not just us. I mean, this is a lot of religious systems. We all tend to think it's okay as long as our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. That seems fair. You know, yes, I sin, but I'm pretty good. I think my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, so God should be okay with me. That's not the biblical picture. That's us taking our view of what we think it should be like and putting it onto God. That's not the way God's revealed it. God doesn't say it that way. That's just us deciding who God is. If we want to look at how God says it, it's very different. Look at this passage in Matthew 5, verse 29. If you're, this is Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Do you know where he says that? In the context of, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't look at a woman with lust. 
that's not, hey, if your right eye causes you to sin, make sure you do enough good deeds to outweigh it. When John the Baptist is talking about Jesus coming in Matthew 3.12, Matthew wrote this. John the Baptist said of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand. The winnowing fork, when they got the grain from the harvest, they put it on the, the floor on a hard ground and they had these forks and they could throw the grain up in the air and the chaff and the wheat would blow away in the wind, but the good grain would settle back down says his winnowing fork is in his hand. He'll clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, what's left, he'll burn with unquenchable fire. Not talking about Jesus being an agriculturalist. He's using an analogy to explain that Jesus is not going to truck with sin. Look at Matthew 5, 46 to 48. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus isn't preaching fairness. He doesn't say, you've got to make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. That's, that's tough stuff. I'm reminded of my buddy who came to the Lord reading the Gospel of John. And then he, he decided the next book he would read is the Gospel of Matthew. And he called me on the phone and he said, I'm going to hell. I can't do this. That's the message of Jesus. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, the problem with most people is at this point, we start trying to dance and figure out how this works. And so we change perfection to something we can achieve. No. As your heavenly Father is perfect. There's not a soul alive today that's going to meet that standard. Nobody. That's the bad news. That's why there is good news in Jesus. Let's dig a little further. Why is God so hung up about sin? Euthyphro's dilemma is one where Socrates and, and, and through the dialogue Plato are asking the question, what makes something moral? What makes something sinful? What makes something good? And the dilemma is kind of a moral equivalent of what comes first, the chicken or the egg. So you got option one. Some actions, Plato says... Are, are Socrates, are holy in themselves. It's just a holy action. So the gods love those actions because they're holy. But as they work through it, Euthyphro realizes, because that's Euthyphro's first option. He says, yeah, 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 that's what I believe. 
then Plato or Socrates shows it doesn't work that way, which moves them to option two. Some uh, actions loved by the God are loved by the gods. Should, the word are should be in there. Some actions are loved by the gods, and that's what makes those actions holy. The gods just happen to love them. They're not holy in and of themselves. They're holy because the gods love them. Now, the, the problem with Euthyphro's dilemma is Socrates has narrowed this down too narrowly. Socrates in the dilemma has elevated morality to a God situation. And what Socrates fails to realize, what works and answers the dilemma is the idea that there's not a panoply of gods, but there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one God. And that God, it's not a question of, is there something out there that that God loves, so we'll call it moral? Or is there something out there that that is moral in itself? No. Here's the answer. Here's the key. God himself is a moral being. There is a morality to God. You and I are moral beings. We may choose immorality, but we are hardwired with an understanding that there is right and wrong. Justice and injustice. You can take a pagan who does, an adamant atheist who doesn't believe in God, and one of the reasons they'll tell you is because if there's a God, why is there suffering? In other words, He's not good. It's not fair. And in that judgment, such an atheist reflects that they themselves have morality and that morality is important to them. We're hardwired to think morally because God made us in His image and God is a moral being. So we don't have trouble deciding what's good or what's evil, we look at God. If God is with it, if it is a description of God, then it is good. That's why we need to study to see who God is. If it's something that's ungodly, by definition, it's evil. And if we then understand that God is 100% morally pure... We've got to understand why he hates evil. It's not a question of, hey, he's going to love you as long as your good outweighs your bad. God's not just some, that, that, that's Socrates' gods. That's the, the Euthyphro dilemma will apply full on there. That God's not, God's not one of these, oh, I'm going to wait these, uh, I'm going to wait these sins. That's a really bad one. That one. Okay, I mean, everybody cheats on their taxes some. You know, okay, well, that's, that's a lie, but it wasn't a big one. Uh, murder? Yeah, yeah, that one's like, that's a big one. Okay. Do we give weight to sin? Oh, I guess in some ways, yes. But in terms of what does it take to live right and perfect before God, it doesn't matter the degree of the sin. The smallest of the smallest of the smallest of selfishness. 
See, if God's 100% pure, how are we going to fit in? You can be the best person in the world. You can be 99.99999% pure. But you can't be in God who's 100% pure because he's not going to change. And 99.999% would, by definition, change the 100% if you were one with God. So because of this, we began to understand, I hope, that God is one who hates evil. Because evil is a destruction of the good. Not good in our lives. On this earth, not something we can live with him with for eternity. Evil is something that's horrible. Evil is something that, that, that in all of its permutations, bad evil, light evil. All of its permutations mar the image of God. They mar the work of God. And I'm not saying God won't work through and, and in spite of evil. He does. And I'm not saying sometimes the best thing's not the lesser of two evils. It is. But I'm saying that evil itself is something worthy of us abhorring and detesting. And if we don't take sin seriously, we lose track of that. I mean, Jesus said in Matthew seven nineteen, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus says in Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. All causes of sin. The word that's translated all causes of sin is the Greek word scandalon. Scandalon is a marvelous picture word. It's not just used for causing sin. If you, uh, we don't have time. Scandalon is, is the trigger that springs the trap. Okay? The trigger that springs the trap. He's going to gather about all of the, anything that even triggers the trap. Sin is the trap. Sin is something that ensnares you and leads to your death. And he's going to root out all of that and throw it into the fiery furniture. He's going to throw away all the lawbreakers. So now we're at a crossroads. We've got these two concepts. We've got God all loving who's concerned about you. Who's affectionate for you. And yet God who hates evil and hates sin and can't have anything to do with it. And the question becomes, how does God's all-loving trait merge with his hatred of evil trait? I'll tell you next week. <laughs> but I think you know, we'll just go into a great deal of depth. But in case you don't, it's by God paying the price for our sins in Jesus. That's the good news. God can hate the sin because he dealt with it 
and love the sinner because he made us 100% pure. We'll get the purity of Jesus. Here's our take home. Number one, I want to look to God as the good one. I told you Jesus had the same confrontation in a sense as Plato wrote of Socrates and Euthyphro. Except for Jesus, it was a ruler who came up to him and said, what should I do to be good, good rabbi, good teacher? And Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. You want to know what's good? I can't give you a list of things. I got to tell you, the only good is who God is. God is good. That's the answer to Euthyphro's dilemma. There's one God and he is good. It's his behavior. It's his ethics. It's his morality. That's it. So with that, I'm going to also take sin seriously. Sin is not a sickness. The Bible does not say sin is a sickness that we have where we need some Advil. Some amoxicillin. Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's death. It's not a fairness issue. And so I want to walk in God's mercy. Because God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Agape, concern for us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together in Christ. It's the beauty of this. That's who he is. That's his CV. That's the course of his life. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus before we go? Father, I extend prayerfully through Jesus' name your blessing on all who hear this message, Father, that we would grow in understanding who you are, your love for us, your hatred for the sin that messes us up and messes up this world. And that we would, Father, walk with you as our king in your kingdom. That your reign would be over our hearts and our minds. And we would take seriously these issues. And live under your kingship. Through Jesus. Amen. Amen.